0: From Innovation Alley at Marquette University, I'm Chuck Swoboda, and this is Innovators On Tap, a show based on the idea that innovation is about leadership. It's a mindset to find a better way, and ultimately, it's about people. These conversations are designed to allow you to open your mind to new ideas and find ways to put those concepts to work. Together, we can solve big problems and maybe even change the world. Gears, bearings, conveyors, drainage systems, Plumbing fixtures, not what you first think of when it comes to innovation, but areas that are maybe even more affected by innovation than all those tech companies that we normally think about. Why? Because while we often associate coming up with the new idea as the hard part of innovation, transforming existing industries can often be even harder. It's the real world for most of us. And today's guest, Todd Adams, is the CEO of Rexnard, one of those real-world companies driving innovation across several different industries. But like many successful leaders, he never imagined himself in that role. As he revealed during our conversation, I never aspired to be CEO. I wanted to contribute to the success of an organization and learn along the way. And whether or not you want to be a CEO, Todd has some great advice about how you should go about any opportunity. Make sure You want to do things for the right reason. People sometimes aspire to roles because they want the title, the recognition, the money. But you actually have to love the job. And if you take away one piece of career advice from all the episodes we've done so far, that might just be the best. That's what's on tap today. Enjoy. Todd, welcome and thanks for joining me today on Innovators on Tap. Thanks, Chuck. Nice to be with you. So, Todd, before we talk about your current role as CEO at Rexnord, I I want to step back and really get your perspective on on the various experiences that led up to that role. You know, I understand you work for Boeing, APW, Applied Power, and I'm curious, if you look back at those experiences along the way, whether they were good or bad, which ones kind of stick in your mind as shaping your leadership philosophy?
1: You know, I think I had an opportunity early on to get exposed to great leaders um, of all different styles and, and backgrounds. And so it really wasn't uh, one. It was sort of taking the good and I th- things I thought were effective from each and then uh, sort of developing your own style. Um, you know, I didn't have, a, as you point out, a classically trained uh, CEO pedigree. Um, and so it was really about, you know, finding what you felt was effective, what you were comfortable with, what you weren't comfortable with, and uh, and merging all of those different you know experiences and you know being around talented people uh, for, for quite a while really I think shaped um you know how i how I work today
0: you know in my experience I think I learned things both good things from people but probably also some things that I'm never going to repeat that any any experiences you're willing to share that maybe give some insight of you know I saw this one time and I, I knew from that moment I'm not going to do that
1: you know, I've worked for people that were difficult and hard on people. And, um, you know, you see what that does to their confidence. And and I tend to think that people work better when they're confident. And so for me, it's all about providing some positive reinforcement of the good things. And, uh, you know, course corrections, uh, you know, are important, but there's a way to go about it. And uh, doing it in a constructive way where people feel confident, they don't feel um, embarrassed or beat up, uh, I think is something that I saw uh, from from people that I work with and for. Never wanted to to, to do that, right? It's uh, confidence is important in in all aspects of life and in particular in your job.
0: So I know you joined Rexnord back in two thousand four, and and you had a couple of different jobs before. In two thousand nine, you get named the CEO at the wise old age of thirty eight, and. I'm curious what do you think the advantages and the disadvantages of becoming a CEO at a r- relatively early age are?
1: The advantages are you really don't get the gravity of what it is you're uh, been asked to do. I was in a spot where I had the opportunity to learn uh, from great people, make some mistakes for sure, and then, you know, really develop uh, the people uh, around me, right? I think being young and 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 um, not having that experience before it gave me the opportunity to bring people around me that could develop the company right so it's been a team sport here uh, for 17 years and it's been the best part of it for me it's really the the, the team aspect and the culture that you're able to create when you don't have uh, this iconic role of CEO being someone who everyone looks to for the answer and um, that's been for me the most most exciting and rewarding part of it is it's it's a team sport here
0: you know todd when i first became ceo as a similar age and one of the things i struggled with a little bit was okay i'm the ceo you know, people expect me to have all the answers and i figured out pretty quickly that i didn't have them and so i was relatively comfortable bringing in frankly people knew a lot more about certain things than i did but i think there's a tension there right the, you know the, the board looks to you you're supposed to have the answers and are you comfortable and when i talk to young people they often struggle with this idea of, of really not wanting to you know i want to be the smartest person in the room how did you get your how did you get yourself beyond that natural reaction that you're supposed to have all the answers
1: i think in general if you if you have good instincts that really drives you know you to do the right thing and I think in my case, again, I was not a classically trained CEO. I never aspired to be a CEO, uh, to be honest with you. I always just wanted to contribute to the success of an organization, learn along the way, and uh, and obviously make some money. And, um, and so being in that position without maybe all the tools, it never afforded me the, I didn't have the opportunity to assume that I knew everything. I, I didn't, I knew I didn't. But I think my judgment was good. I think I had reasonable business instincts. And that was what um, what got me through the knothole, right? We, we all go through ups and downs. You learn from them. And, and hopefully you don't make the same mistake, mistake twice.
0: You know, in my case, I had a chance to be the president of the company for a few years ahead of time. And it helped me a ton because... I really thought I knew everything about running the company. And then when I got the CEO job, I realized everything I didn't know yet. So um, that's right. So, you know, I know that Rexnord just recently went through an interesting transition. And, you know, for our audience that, you know, has heard the name, but doesn't understand that transition, can you walk me through a little bit of what Rexnord was and what is it going to be going forward, the business you're going to be running?
1: So Rexnord has been around for 128 years and mechanical power transmission based in Milwaukee. Uh, We built the business from... About seven hundred million to about a billion five, uh, from a top line perspective, and then in two thousand and seven, we wanted to diversify our business, and we bought uh, Jacuzzi, the public company. Uh, we felt like the water end markets would grow faster over time, but our power transmission businesses, and you know, were just terrific from a revenue and earnings and cash flow perspective, and we wanted to use some of that to diversify our business. I had a chance to be the president uh, when we bought Zern and you know, it's turned out to be a terrific uh, acquisition. And as a public company with two different businesses, I mean, very different businesses, different customers, end markets, products, dynamics, from a go-to-market perspective, we felt like making it simpler to understand what, as a public company was was the right route to take. Uh, and our board made that decision. And we pursued a transaction where we were merging our power transmission business into a, a separate public company where, Our shareholders are on half, and now um, what was Rexnord will be Zern, a standalone public company uh, solely based uh, in the water industry.
0: So that's pretty exciting from a chance to really focus, right? You know, you take part of the complexity is having two very different businesses, and now you're all in on water. So I'm curious, as you look forward in the water business, what role does innovation play as you look out the next three to five years?
1: the the things that we do you know really focus on uh, water safety water uh, conservation and flow control and if you think about a commercial building or a a dormitory in a university um, anything that touches water uh, in a building are are products that we make as we've all learned you know the hygienic aspect of what water does and can be uh, inside of a building is incredibly important and so you know, we've doubled down on uh, creating hygienic solutions to solve those problems. And uh, so innovation, you know, is uh, super important for us, Uh, you know, refreshing our product portfolio, creating, um, you know, products that customers want today, and then also products that customers are going to need going forward.
0: So as you think about innovation for your business, do you think it needs to be disruptive? You know, it needs to radically change something? Or is it more, of a continuous improvement approach as you think about what's necessary to be successful?
1: It's probably overweight, continuous improvement, only because, you know, the the, the building cycle is long, right? So if you think about how a building gets built, it gets uh, designed by an engineer or an architect, and it gets sent out to a mechanical contractor, at which point it gets bid out to various subcontractors. And it's all done based on the products that are available. Two years before the building is actually built, and so in our case, you know, we've been innovating around how do we make products that you know work better together, how do we make products that uh, install faster, and how do we make products that ultimately uh, reduce the total cost of ownership inside of a building, and so we're probably two thirds of our innovation comes from continually refreshing that portfolio, and a third is, as you pointed out, a little bit more disruptive. Um, you know, leveraging uh, valves that are in a building to do other things aside from open or close, but, you know, being able to detect bacteria and, and contaminants in the water. But the build cycle and the, the is, is long. And so, you know, if we design the greatest new product in the world today, uh, you know, it would probably be in the market in three years.
0: So. You know, I read about uh, something you guys do called the Rexnord business system, and I know that it's based on the notion that I think you say with great people, a winning plan and systematic repeatable process, we can do a little more and a little better for our customers every day. And, you know, one of the benefits of a great system and processes is that they limit variability, they drive predictability, they take what you've learned in the past and apply it to get better each time. But when there's big changes in the market, right, something disruptive happens, you know, like what we've seen over the last year with the pandemic, I wonder if these same systems kind of make it harder to quickly adapt. And and what I'm teasing out here a little bit, Todd, is, you know, Clay Christensen, who wrote The Innovator's Dilemma, and one of his interesting observations was, is that the best managed companies in the world often struggle the most with disruptive change, because the things they do to make themselves phenomenally managed companies make it hard to embrace these, you know, um, discontinuous kind of changes. So how do you balance that in your company?
1: It's, um, it's a great question. And when we get, you know, frequently at its core, the Rexnord business system is our common language and, and simply how we work. And so, you know, obviously there are aspects of it, uh, that are related to how we manufacture things, how we procure goods, uh, how we innovate. But at its core, uh, it's it's a way we work. So people always have that as sort of a backbone and a guiding principle on being nimble, being agile, uh, being entrepreneurial. And inside of that framework, you know, there's a lot of systems and tools and processes that allow it to be repeatable and scalable. And um, you know, I, I think it really helps us in those sort of disruptive moments where you don't have to go, oh my gosh, what, what do we do now? And whether it's how we do our strategic plans, how we develop people, it's really about having just that common framework and understanding. And sure there's times when, um, it feels rigid, but it's rigid around the things that maybe are are unchanging. But flexible enough to deal with um, you know unforeseen events and changes in the marketplace and frankly just different end market dynamics i mean we have two very very different businesses so we feel like it's definitely um, been a competitive advantage for us to have that common language that we've all collectively developed over you know the last uh, close to 20 years now
0: so you know one of the things i think you're teasing out is there's a system but then there's this approach to being entrepreneurial which in my experience comes down as much to the people's mindset, the culture, this this ability to live within a system, but know that it's okay to take a risk when it's the right moment, right? You you basically, you create this natural tension that fosters this innovative environment. And so I'm curious, do you agree with that perspective? And if so, how do you foster this ability within your company to be good at one, but know when it's okay to break the rules?
1: Well, I think what we've generally done is rewarded outcomes and you know, not really value the steps uh, or the level of activity. Because at, at the end of the day, we, we either are winning or losing. And you know, sometimes when you reward uh, the process and adhering to the process versus rewarding the outcomes, uh, whether they be good or bad, uh, is when you know, we feel like, um, you can get, you can get caught in your own mousetrap.
0: You know, I think it's a really great observation is that, um, if you can stay outcome focused, it corrects itself. Um, and I think what the challenge is, is that that asks a manager to be more than a manager, right? It asks them to truly lead the team. Right. And, and I think, cause it's easy to manage activity. Mm -hmm. but you have to lead outcomes. And I think that's an interesting tension that uh, you're teasing out there and actually great advice for those people who are listening. So, so I know that Rexnard recently launched a new corporate social responsibility website. And you said, we've long viewed simply doing the right thing as our guiding principle. We know that we have a role to play to operate in a way that prioritizes social responsibility. And I love this goal and this idea, but I have to say, Todd, when I was a CEO, I, I knew that ultimately I was being judged by outcomes. And in my case, what happens every 90 days, right? And so, and the shareholders really care as much as they say they care about those things, they voted with their shares in the stock on the stock price. And so I'm curious, do you ever feel like you're stuck in a trade-off where you know the right thing to do long-term, whether it be on social responsibility, it could be on environmental things, anything that has kind of a longer, less directly tangible to the bottom line in the short term thing. And and how do you deal with that tension?
1: It is obviously a challenge. But, you know, we launched this website and and report last year, but it was things we had been doing for 15 years. And, you know, in our case, we sort of kept it simple. Let's just simply do the right thing around the environment and social and governance aspects and even social justice and racial inequities. And as a result, the output variables were great. Um, you know, the reduction in greenhouse gases and waste, uh, the diversity of our business, which is about 40 percent of our, our entire population, the number of diverse board members we have and, and females in, in executive roles. And so we always start every meeting uh, with what are we trying to accomplish here? What we were trying to accomplish with uh, our corporate social responsibility plan was just do the right thing and, and, and ultimately like doing the right thing, becoming an employer of choice and creating a little bit of an ecosystem, uh, that, you know, people felt like they, they, they buy in. Right. And people spend so much of their lives at work. And if you can make them feel like, um, the company they're working for is is just simply doing the right thing and occasionally marketing marketing it, um, that's sort of the, the approach we've taken. And I think we are all incredibly proud of the work we've done, but recognize there's just so much more to do. And, um, I do think shareholders are beginning to get the fact that these actually are important measuring sticks uh, of of how the business is run, ultimately. And it it helps your competitive advantage over time.
0: Yeah, I think what they are is they're probably a, for any investor who cares more about them the next 90 days, they're probably a sign of the ultimate health of that organization and its long-term viability, I think. Uh, And what's great is that we're at least allowed to talk about that today because I know Back in two thousand and one, that was that didn't get me very far in an earnings call, but uh, I think now it actually has become a legitimate part of the conversation. And it should be. I think it's great to see. So, you know, you're really focused now on water technology, and I'm curious as you look out over the next five, maybe ten years, what are the challenges facing the water business and and water technology, and and where do you think the opportunities are for you and for the industry as a whole?
1: I think that. The pandemic is creating a dynamic where people may not work in dense uh, buildings as as often as they do today or it had before the pandemic. Um, whether that's a university setting, um, you know, are kids going to continue to go to school full time, or will there be more kids doing virtual? And as a result of that, you know, the, the need for some of our products could be, you know, mitigated from a demand standpoint. But I do believe that over time. Uh, building will will come back um, and water safety and water conservation will only get more and more important and the metering and measuring of that for contaminants and things of that like like that are going to be a more uh, important part of people's thinking and particularly when you think about a building control system right being able to determine, uh, not only the water usage, but is, is is there is there a leak somewhere that's happening? Uh, are there contaminants inside the building? Uh, those are all going to be uh, incredibly important down the road, which should we think offset maybe some of this natural tendency to to densify that that had been you know going on for a long time.
0: Do you ever? I mean, I assume you. I would assume as a company, you guys talk about we have this technology. It's very much focused on the building. Some of it clearly could be applied uh to the home or much smaller environments and i know that's not been a focus how do you guys think about should we take this technology and move more distributed away from this central expertise we've built
1: you know we've we've actually started to do that um you know 14 15 years ago uh zern had almost no residential exposure and now our residential exposure is up to about 15 percent of our total Um, the other thing that is I think an important mix is the, the retrofit of buildings to the latest technology. And so, you know, we'll, we'll end this year with about 40% of our business uh, being retrofit. You know, as you think about um, touchless uh, fixtures in a restroom, uh, every time there's a, a building gets, you know, refurbished, uh, they're always putting in the latest technology. And, and so we think there's really two two great end markets, the retrofit and, and uh, residential that are going to help us continue to scale the business. And it'll bring us new ideas. Um, you know, being able to do a retrofit faster with fewer parts, uh, to drop ship uh, an entire kit with everything in it. Um, and e-commerce is playing a big role in, in pushing us into those directions that, you know, historically had been serviced by a traditional, you know, mechanical or plumbing wholesale um, type distributor model. Um, More and more people are willing to go to YouTube and learn how to to do something on their own and and click on, uh, you know, a buy it now and have it shipped to their home in you know a day. And I think that's also helping us, um, become a little bit more of a brand that people recognize, uh, in their home.
0: All right, so Todd, what I'd like to do now is kind of switch gears and ask you a series of questions that really get into kind of How does Todd Adams think, your mindset, and how you view certain aspects of innovation and leadership? So first question is this, do you believe that your career success has come more from avoiding failure or embracing failure?
1: Without question, embracing failure. You know, I I generally like to simplify things. That's allowed me, I I think, to understand, you know, if there's a decision tree, you, you know when you have to pick a way, you know, pick a path. By default you don't always get it right and so that's simplifying down to okay we've got two choices right we're going to go left or we're going to go right Um, and when you get it wrong you can always look back and say oh did i have the wrong instincts Did i have the wrong facts and and what can i do to you know learn from that going forward so it's definitely been around embracing failure
0: yeah and i think what you said there is critical It, it fundamentally you have to appreciate the learning that comes from it right? If you're not sure if it's left or right, you don't know until you try. And no matter which way you go, you'll learn something. And uh, and as long as you can apply that, it tends to, uh, at least in my experience, tends to make companies uh, continue to grow and be able to take on the next challenge. So when you're building a team at Rexnord and one that you're trying to encourage innovation, what do you think is more important to their success? Creating a culture of brutal honesty, even if it makes people uncomfortable, or creating an environment of psychological safety, where you're really trying to, to temper the conversations and, and maybe limit some of the confrontations.
1: It's it's right after the brutal truths. I mean, there are many times, and you know, obviously, we we get tons of input from customers. Um, we we have a stage gate process for our product development, but at some point, you have to look yourself in the mirror and go, "What are we doing? You know, and, and are we really going to?" ask people to pay more for this are we really going to take share from our competitor from 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 this new uh, innovation and so i think we try to be really brutal about you know if it's not working kill it and get on to the next thing that's probably wasn't always the case you know it was you know we're going to develop something and maybe you think it's a 10 million dollar opportunity and then you get 6 months in and it's down to a 3 million dollar opportunity and then by the time you launch it Um, you've sort of come to the the conclusion that it's really not worth it. And so I think in our case, you know, killing things that aren't going to make an impact and have an outcome early has been um, the success that has allowed us to uh, resource our innovation more smartly than just simply doing it for,
0: you know, the process. So if you're going to describe how you personally approach problems, would you say you are more likely to think outside the box to build a better box or just set the box on fire? It's probably a mix of all.
1: Um, you know, I, I think if you have reasonable instincts and good judgment, you know, there are times when you've got to set the box on fire. Um, there's times when you have to turn the problem uh, upside down and and look at it from someone else's perspective. And there's times when, you know, the solution is in front of you. You know, you've got to build that better box um, so that uh, you, you can accomplish the outcome. And so I, I do a little bit of all. It, it keeps it more entrepreneurial, right? If, if every time there's a problem, we set, we set it on fire, uh, people eventually b- don't believe that it's a problem, like, uh, and they won't bring you the problem. And, and I think by, by being disciplined around, like, let's measure the dynamic and the situation at the time and make a good pragmatic decision, whether it's, look, we were wrong, you know, we've got to start over or look the problems in front of us. We, we know how to fix this. We're just not deploying the right amount of resources to it or we're not holding ourselves accountable to what we should be. And and so it's a little bit of all of three.
0: So when you're evaluating talent for your team, what are the one or two must-have characteristics that you're looking for?
1: You know, for, for me, um, it's about does someone have... Uh, the right amount of intellect to do the job we're asking them to do. Do they confidently take risks because they know that um, they're really they're really the ones that have to do the hard work day to day. And and so I think you know just a, a level of intellect that you can just tell someone gets it, and and really being able to connect the dots. You you got to have a little bit of empathy. Uh, you got to have a little bit of instinct. You you got to understand what motivates people. And, and all of those things, I, I think, lead to you know a place where entrepreneurial is w- rewarded. And that's sort of the things that I look for.
0: So, you know, Todd, you describe things that I, I agree with completely, but they're, they're hard to get at, right? You know, so many people, especially who are earlier in their careers, when they get a chance to interview someone, they look at the resume and they assume the answer is there. And most of these characteristics aren't necessarily obvious from a resume. Do you have... Is there anything you do or any insight you can give people how you try to get at that in the interview or the, you know, the the screening process for new employees?
1: I think it starts with making them feel comfortable, right? Take me through where you grew up. What did your mom and dad do? Uh, you know, do you have brothers and sisters? And, you know, by gaining that understanding of, okay, this is a first, firstborn child or it's a third child, um, you know, maybe a, a candidate's parents, you know, were in the military or, you know, had had advanced degrees, or maybe didn't, or they were a first gen student. And I think understanding who a person is at their core uh, and making them feel comfortable in that uh, then affords you the opportunity to ask questions. You know, what was the biggest mistake you made? And you know, if it's well, I I didn't um, I, I didn't move on and make a personnel change as early as I should have. Well, why? You know, why didn't you do that? What what did you what did you learn from it and what would you do differently this time about making people feel comfortable and then really getting at the core of who they are?
0: So Todd, if we were having this conversation and and I asked you, what is the biggest mistake you've made? What would it be?
1: Inherent that, you know, when you have a business that's underperforming, you want to work at it and you want to invest resources in it. But, But what really you need to do is take a look in the mirror and say, are we the best owner for this business forever? And, you know, we had a, a large water infrastructure business that we had acquired when we were private. And, um, you know, we, we worked our tails off for years uh, to try to make it better. And uh, so we carried it around for five or six years. We ultimately sold it for, you know, 10 percent of the revenue. Um, but life got easier. Our business got better. Um, and, and the things along the way, right, that you learn are. You 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 you're wasting your resources, and so put prioritizing where you put your resources to where you can win, versus um, you know working really hard, uh, recognizing that you know I'm not even sure you want to win uh, sometimes, and and that that was my biggest mistake.
0: And yeah, that is incredibly great insight, Todd, because you know I think so often you see a problem, and if you're good at solving problems, you want to go fix it, and the answer is. It, being successful in business is about figuring out what are the best problems for you to solve, right? What are the best problems because the return is right? But also, what are you best positioned to do? You know, one of the challenges we learned early on is, you know, one of our competitors in the LED business was Samsung Electronics. We were never going to build more manufacturing scale than they were. It just wasn't going to happen. And so, you know, it helped us realize that scaling manufacturing, we, you know, we wanted to do that to sell product, but we weren't going to win based on that. So we were going to, we were going to be okay with not being as good at them at that part, but being way better at coming out with new products faster. And so figuring out what you can be good at relative to your competitor, I think is a little bit of what you're teasing out there. And sometimes you just can't get there from here. Yeah. So what advice do you have for aspiring leaders who someday hope to be in a position to, you know, run a division or run a company, what would you tell them?
1: Make sure you want to do it for the right reasons. I think sometimes people aspire to roles because of what they believe the job is. I think the best advice I would, would give was be understand what you really want to do. I mean, is it the title? Is it the recognition? Is it the money? And, and I think you got to really love the job. And, and, and make sure you understand what the job is. People people aspire to more because they think it's better and they'll be happier. Um, but understand what makes you happy, what you're really good at. And if you want to get up and, and, and move up, whatever that means, make sure you understand what it entails, because uh, you, you might find that, uh, you know, the destination is not worth uh, the journey.
0: Todd, I want to really thank you for being on the show. Uh, I really appreciate it. And I hope that uh, I get to see you in person again soon. That would be
1: great, Chuck. I really did enjoy it.
0: Thanks to Todd for joining me on today's episode and sharing insights from his successful career at Rexnord. And don't forget his advice on the importance of figuring out what you're not going to do. As he said, at some point, you need to look yourself in the mirror and ask, what are we really doing? If something isn't working, kill it and then move on to the next thing. We want to thank all of you who have embraced this show and we hope that you will tell your friends about it. We would also really appreciate it if you would take a minute to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Thanks for joining us on this journey and let's go change the world.